There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. On Wednesday, the 25th of October, in Maine, New England, 18 people were shot dead. On Saturday, the 7th of October, Hamas terrorists rampaged through the border towns of Israel, killing at least 1,400 Israelis. In the early hours of Monday, the 11th of September, severe floods resulted in two dams collapsing in Derna, Libya, with 20,000 souls being swept away to their deaths. Suffering and sadness is never very far away from us, and uh, not only in the news. Everyday individuals are victims of crime and abuse, others suffering debilitating illness and death. The problem of pain is all around us all the time, and it raises huge questions. When the uh, Indian Ocean tsunami on Boxing Day 2004 killed more than 250,000 people, Melanie Phillips, writing in the Daily Mail, asked, how can you believe in a God who permits suffering on this scale? The same incident caused Martin Kettle to write in The Guardian that while events like 9-11 can be explained as an act of fallen humanity, the tsunami was indisputably, he said, an act of God. And he asked, what kind of God would act that way? Suffering, and especially on such a scale, does raise questions about the existence of God and the character of God. Can I really believe there is a God in the light of all this suffering? And if there is, what is he like to allow this? Now, look, there are no easy answers. Indeed, whenever we're faced with tragic situations, we do well to avoid trite, superficial answers. That said, there are things we can say. Suffering and injustice is addressed throughout the Bible. And in our reading today, we see Jesus engaging with it head on. Now, if you've been here with us in these last few weeks, you'll know that uh, we've been looking at uh, occasions in, in this particular section of Luke's gospel when Jesus was kind of interrupted when he was speaking to the crowds that, that gathered around him. On each occasion, Jesus was talking about the most important issues anyone could ever consider, heaven and hell, death and eternity, being ready to meet God. And while he was speaking on these colossal issues, these interruptions from individuals in the crowd are fascinating because they reveal what's really on people's minds. Now, this week at the beginning of chapter 13 and verse 1, we read, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. See, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, there was one thing quite understandably dominating the minds of his hearers. An horrific act of sadistic barbarism, breaking all the rules of the Geneva Convention. Pilate, the Roman governor, had had some people from Galilee executed. And then as a callous act of religious hatred, he'd mixed the blood, their blood, with the blood from the temple sacrifices. It was a religious hate crime designed to cause maximum offense. An atrocious act that would have sent shockwaves throughout the land and around the world left people outraged, undoubtedly been headline news. No wonder it was on people's minds. No wonder they asked Jesus about it. Whenever suffering and tragedy comes our way, we want answers. Of course we do. 
And the way Jesus answers here is fascinating. But to understand what he says, we do well to to look back a few verses. And this brings us to our first point on the handout, interpreting the times, uh, chapter 12, verses 54 to 56. In chapter 12, Jesus has been speaking about all sorts of things, but not least of all, he's been saying to the crowd they needed to be ready for a day of cataclysmic proportions. A day when God will wrap up history as we know it, a day when the Lord Almighty will hold humanity to account. And at the end of the chapter, having spoken of that final day in history, Jesus challenged the crowd who gathered around him. Just have a look at chapter 12 and verse 54. Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there'll be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Uh, In short, Jesus said to them, how is it you're very good at predicting the weather, but you're clueless when it comes to understanding the significance of the time you're living in? I I think it's fair to say that Brits, like me, are a tad obsessed with the weather. As I've been preparing this week, I've noticed how many times I greet people with a reference to current weather conditions. Morning, chilly start today. Hi, how was your weekend? Did you get caught in that dreadful downpour? I am so looking forward to the warmer weather. Have a nice day. I'm always commenting on the weather, and I'm always checking my, my, my weather app. And it's not just me. As a nation, it seems we love the weather forecasts on the television, the radio. But even without the weather apps and weather forecasters' fancy charts and computerized graphics, we know how to interpret the weather. So if I say to you, red sky at night, you will say... Yeah, well done. Very good. I expect a bit more audience participation next time, but there we are. That's right. Yeah, Shepherd's Delight. We know that there is, if there's a beautiful red sky this evening, tomorrow will be a glorious day. And if I say red sky in the morning, you will say? Very good. The little rhyme tells us that if we wake up to a red sky, we know we need to put our raincoat on and have our brolly to hand. We know how to interpret the weather. And so it was for those Jesus was speaking to in the first century. Uh, Indeed, without weather apps and weather forecasts on the news, they were probably even better at interpreting the weather than we are. So Jesus said to the crowd, verse 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you know you need to grab your brolly. And in verse 55, when you see a feel a south wind blowing, you know it's time to put on your shorts, get down to the beach and have a barbie. Jesus says, you're very good at reading the signs in the sky. So, end of verse 56, why don't you know how to interpret the present time? And Jesus doesn't mince his words here. In verse 56, he calls the crowds hypocrites. Crikey, that's a bit strong. You see, uh, the issue is not that they couldn't understand the present time, but that they wouldn't. We saw two weeks ago, if you were here, that Jesus, when he turned up, had given them loads and loads of signs, miraculous signs, signs that, quite frankly, you didn't need to be brain of Britain or rather intellect of Israel to understand. His audience was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, and those ancient writings were as clear as the nose on your face in saying that when the long-awaited Messiah come, he would do, well, all the things that Jesus did. It was as clear as day, or as Jesus says here, it was as clear as a cloud rising in the west or red sky at night. Jesus was clearly the long-awaited Messiah, the saviour of the world. And so the present time, as he calls it there in, in verse 56, end of verse 56, the present time was Messiah time. And you couldn't miss it. 
unless you are stubbornly refusing to see it, which, as we saw two weeks ago, is how many of those crowding around Jesus were acting. They were refusing to read the signs. And so, verse 56, Jesus calls them hypocrites. You worked out how to read the weather, but you stubbornly refused to read the sign of the times. You refused to see that it's Messiah time. It's what John the Baptist had told them way back at the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 3. John had announced that Jesus was the promise of the Messiah, the Lord, no less. And John said Messiah time was repentance time. You look at the weather and you know when it's the rainy season. Well, look at Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, and you should know it's repentance season. But they refused to see it. And that is a bit lopsided, to say the least. Get your weather prediction wrong and you'll get wet and end up with soggy sausages on your barbecue, which is hardly the end of the world. But fail to read the sign of the times and take this opportunity to repent and you'll be catapulted into the presence of your maker before you're ready for it. And that really is the end of the world. That's the backdrop to chapter 13. And now some in the crowd had asked Jesus to explain and interpret the horrific tragedy that had rocked the nation. So we move from interpreting the times to our second point, tragic times and chapter 13 verses 1 to 5. A Pilate was well known as a vicious and ruthless ruler, but on this occasion, he excelled in his cruelty. Executing those Galileans was not just an act of brutal terrorism. Mixing their blood with the blood of their animal sacrifices was an act of uh, religious sacrilege. It was a religious hate crime on steroids. News about the atrocity reverberated around around Israel and around the world, I guess. It would have shocked the nation just as the attack of Hamas militia has rocked that nation in these last weeks. Pilate's action was one of raw, naked wickedness. And so some in the crowd asked Jesus about that horrible act. And Jesus interpreted the sign of the times for them. Verse 2, he answered them, You think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell that killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's fascinating. See, in verse 1, those in the crowd only asked Jesus about the Pilate atrocity. But Jesus deliberately introduced a second disaster that was fresh in people's minds at the time, an incident that had happened in a suburb of Jerusalem called Siloam, where 18 people had been crushed when a tower collapsed. And here's the thing. Pilate's crime was a deliberate act of unimaginable cruelty. The collapse of the tower was just one of those unexpected and unforeseen circumstances. When the tower collapsed, people had just been going about their everyday lives, minding their everyday business, when suddenly their everyday became their last day. No doubt grieving people would have been interviewed on the news, telling desperate stories of their loved ones having simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. There'd have also been some some good news stories, stories of lucky escapes of people who would normally have been passing by that tower at that precise moment. It collapsed, but they slept through the alarm clock and they, they missed the 6.53 from Bethlehem that morning. And then there may well have been stories of great acts of heroism, of people risking their own lives to save others buried under the rubble. No doubt there would have been a call for a public inquiry and, 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 and the, game, the blame game would have been played, blaming the architects or the construction company of the shoddy biz, uh, building practices, perhaps blaming the local authority for failing to respond to calls from the public about the building being unsafe. One way and another, it would have been on the news and much debated. 
But all the talking aside, at the end of the day, it was a tragedy and left ordinary families bereaved and grieving and their lives would never be the same again. And here's the thing. The collapse of the Tower of Siloam was nothing like Pilate's barbaric act of religious hatred. His was a deliberate act of wicked horror. The Tower, an unfortunate accident. But with those two very different national tragedies in view, Jesus says precisely the same thing. Now, before we look at precisely what Jesus does say, let me just stop here for a moment. It's really important to note that what we read here from the lips of Jesus is not the only thing Jesus said about suffering and tragedy. And it's not the only comment the Bible has on the subject either. There are many chapters in the Bible addressing the problem of suffering. And so as we listen to what Jesus says here, please know there is so much more in the Bible that could be said. But Jesus, I think, is doing one thing here. He's telling us how to respond to tragedy in the light of the times we're living in. He's telling us how to interpret the sign of the times, if you will. And the first thing he says, again, it's on the handout there, is the people who died are not worse sinners. Verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. Verse 4, all those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Jesus knows us so well because this is exactly how we think. Tragedy strikes and we ask, why him? Why her? Why me? What did they do or what have I done to deserve this? Well, sometimes we say it in a quite hurtful, callous and judgmental way. I think of someone I know well who suffered terribly and people who know nothing of the situation have assumed he must have done something really bad for the things that have happened to to have happened to him to have happened to him. These days, people love to talk about karma. People with no religious background and certainly no real understanding of Hinduism will talk about bad karma when things go wrong. It's payback for all the time, all the stuff you've done in this life, earlier in this life, or even in a previous life, they'll say. Well, look, Jesus debunks that way of thinking here. In verse 2, he asks, were the people who died at the hands of Pilate worse sinners than those who survived? And then he answers his own question, verse 3, no, I tell you. And those who died when the tower collapsed, was it payback because, verse 4, they were worse offenders? No, verse 5. That is so helpful because many of us will know people who have died in tragic circumstances and we know they weren't especially wicked people any more than we are. Which leads to the second thing Jesus says here. First, the people who died were not worse sinners. But second, we are all sinners. See it there again, verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? No. Verse 4, do you think that they were worse offenders? No. Jesus is clear, we are all sinners, we are all offenders. Now look, I know it's not very politically correct to talk like this these days, but anyone who's looked honestly at their own lives, in their own hearts, knows that there are things in their lives that they're ashamed of. Things we've said, things we've done. Things we've thought. Believe me, there are all sorts of things that have gone through my mind that are very ugly. Someone hurts me, I mean really does something against me or those I love, and I want the most terrible things to happen to them. I've imagined all sorts of horrendous scenarios for them. The things that go on my head, horrible. Never mind the things I've said and done. Oh, we're all sinners. 
And no one in Jesus' day would have questioned that, just as no one who's really honest with themselves today will really question it. So Jesus says, the people who died are not worse sinners, but we are all sinners. And so Jesus says, repent of your sin. It's there in verse 3 and again in verse 5. This is how to interpret the times, because it's Messiah time, which is repentance season, time to get ready to meet God. We're in a very specific moment in time, a wonderful point in history, actually, after the time when Jesus the Messiah has come and before the cataclysmic moment when God wraps up history as we know it. So this is the time to repent and be forgiven, to be ready to meet our maker. Jesus says here, tragedy is an alarm call to wake us up, to to jolt us into realizing that we're kind of sleepwalking our way into an appointment with God. And so Jesus, in his loving kindness, says every time you hear of a tragic event in the world, whether it's a barbaric and deliberate act of pure wickedness or just a terrible accident, every time you hear of a tragedy, it's kind of like a fire alarm. And if we act on it and repent, it'll save our lives for eternity. So on Wednesday, the 25th of October in Maine, New England, do you think any one of those 18 people who were gunned down by Robert Card, when they went out to their local bar and bowling alley that evening, thought for one minute they wouldn't be returning home later on that evening? Or think of those who were massacred at the Supernova Music Festival in Israel on the 7th of October. Do you think that any one of them, when they woke up that morning, dreamt that for one second they, that this would be the last day they had on earth? Or in the early hours of Monday, the 11th September, as the rain lashed down in Derna, Libya, do you think that when they went to bed that night, that it went through the minds of any of those 20,000 people who were swept away to their deaths, that within hours they would be catapulted into the presence of God? But of course not, because we never think it's going to happen to us. We always think we have longer. So when tragedy strikes anywhere in the world, it's a wake-up call. Tragedy is the alarm bell ringing, a loving warning for us to get ready to meet God. Because it's repentance season, it's Messiah time, and wonderfully we can be ready for that day, that moment. Jesus says here, you know how to interpret the weather, so know how to interpret the times. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight, terrorists swarming, it's the good shepherd's warning. A loving warning for us to be ready to meet our maker. And in his loving kindness, Jesus has done everything to make it possible for us to be ready. And with this, I'll close. If you look on a few verses after Jesus said these words to verse 22, you'll see that it simply says that he was heading towards Jerusalem. And as we read on in Luke's gospel, we discover that he was heading towards Jerusalem to die on a cross. His death was no accident. It was a deliberate miscarriage of justice by Pilate and the religious establishment of the time. But they weren't actually pulling the strings. Oh, their actions were wicked. But Jesus died deliberately and willingly in an act of self-sacrificial love to save us from perishing, as he puts it in verse 3 and verse 5 of chapter 13. In the tragedy of the 2004 Boxing Day Indian Ocean tsunami, there were some remarkable acts of sacrifice. Let me tell you about just one. A man who was safe in the upper story of a hotel saw a teenage girl struggling to cling on to a tree for dear life as the torrent of water threatened to carry her away into a certain death. 
The man who was safe ran down the stairs to, of, the, of, the, of the hotel to help the girl. And as he helped the girl out of the water and to safety, he lost his footing, fell into the water, and he was swept away to his death. Now, that is just a little picture, a tiny picture of what Jesus did for us as he died on the cross. But his death was no accident. Well, yes, he came down from safety, and quite deliberately, he died to save us. He was not a sinner, and yet he took the punishment for sin on the cross so that if we repent, we can be right with God. That is how much Jesus loves you and me. And so if you've not yet turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, let me urge you, plead with you to do it today. Look at the tragic events that are all around us in the world, and there are many of them at the moment, it seems. Read the sign of the times. Hear the alarm bell ringing. And think to yourself, I want to be ready to, be, to meet my maker. For those of us here this afternoon who have already taken that step and have repented and turned to Jesus, well, when we see tragedy and suffering in the world, it should spur us on to tell our friends and colleagues and neighbors about Jesus. Out of love, to invite them to hear about the God who loves them enough to die for them. And for us to get a move on with that, to do it sooner rather than later, because the tragedies all around us tell us we never know when it might happen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we've been thinking in these last moments about weighty matters. We are surrounded in the news all the time, it seems, at the moment with these tragic events. We thank you that the Lord Jesus speaks honestly and plainly with us. We thank you that he loves us enough to tell us how it really is. And we pray that we'd listen to this warning, the warning of tragedies, the warning of Jesus saying, repent. And for any here who haven't yet done that, please give them the the courage and the readiness to do that right now. And for those of us who have, give us an urgency about this great task of telling others about the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.